Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. In our new podcast, The Cone, we'll be taking a different African story every week, often suggested by our audience, and investigating it with the journalism of the BBC African Newsroom. Search for The Cone wherever you got this podcast. Hello and welcome to NewsHour. It's coming to you live from the BBC World Service studios in central London. I'm Tim Franks. It has the world's biggest economy, the world's most powerful army. And today the United States reached a new unwanted milestone in exceptionalism. Three million confirmed coronavirus cases. The news was announced by the Vice President Mike Pence at the White House. At this point we have tested more than 39 million Americans. Among those, uh, more than 3 million Americans have tested positive and more than 1.3 million Americans have recovered. Uh, sadly, more than 133,000 Americans have lost their lives and our sympathies are with all of the impacted families. And while we mourn with those who mourn because of what the American people have done, because of the extraordinary work of our health care workers around the country, uh, we are encouraged uh, that the average fatality rate continues to be low and steady. One state where infections are surging is Florida, which is accounting for about 20% of all new cases in the United States. Yesterday saw a further 10,000 cases reported in the state, and dozens of hospitals are saying that their intensive care units are at or approaching capacity. Dr Andrew Poteski is ICU Medical Director at Jackson South Medical Centre in Miami. What's the situation in his hospital? Well, we are moving systematically to create more and more space for the COVID patients so that we can isolate them from the rest of our patients. We have expanded our ICU capacity from 38 beds now to 52 with the plan to Uh, expand that capacity further. We have gone from one COVID floor to two to three, and now we've got a fourth area. And one of the things we have in the Jackson system is the ability to help each other through different hospitals. So if one hospital gets flexed or too many patients, we can shift them around a bit, but we're all seeing heavy burdens. So we're actually looking at starting to cohort patients in the near future, two patients to a private room, that sort of thing. So you are aiming to increase your capacity, as you say, presumably at a certain point, though, you'll hit the ceiling. Yeah, at some point you're going to need uh, some kind of COVID nursing home for the patients who aren't as sick but can't go back to their skilled nursing facility. That really is one of the big problems is that once you get a patient who's COVID positive, even if they're not uh, very sick, they're going to stay COVID positive for a while and they can't go back to their nursing home. Uh, And for that to use up a hospital bed when they're not actively requiring a hospital level of care is really where we get stressed out. And if there's the ability to cohort these patients somewhere else, we'll be, we'll be able to handle the capacity of the actual sick people that we have to take care of. One of the uh, things that the administration is keen to stress, and indeed the statistics do seem to bear this out to, to an extent, is that although there is a surge in the, in the uh, number of cases, the death rate itself seems to have uh, ticked down slightly, um, or at least the numbers uh, dying seems to have ticked down um, slightly. 
again, what are you seeing on that and, and how far um, is Florida, which of course has quite an elderly population um, in many cases uh, because a lot of people retire there, you might think uh, would potentially suffer more. Yeah, so one thing about our fatality rate with COVID is they don't usually die right away. So you need to wait uh, a few weeks to see this the, the current surge, how they're going to do. Um, I do feel like we had uh, a sicker population in the beginning. However, we have also changed our strategies on how to uh, treat these patients and some of the drugs we've used to fight this. And so I feel like we might be doing a better job with it. But I don't think you can look at the fatality rate today and base it on, on this current in, uh, surge because these patients really don't die right away for the most part. It's usually around two to three weeks where they, don't, where they start to do bad. And just in terms of the overall approach that, that Florida has taken, um, which has been um, that it, it essentially, it, it initially, at the very least, it did suggest it seems to the rest of the United States, look, you may be locking down, but we remain open. Um, How far do you think that may have contributed to what we are now seeing in terms of the the surge in cases? Well, there's no arguing that we had a a surge, we locked down, and the numbers went down. Um, We opened up. We did open up somewhat slowly in Miami, where I, I, I live, opened up even slower. We did have a confounding variable in the protesting happening at the same time. So it, it's really hard to pinpoint one thing or the other. Um, I, for one, have mixed feelings about opening up. I believe masks are going to be the key, a very simple answer to going forward in this country um, and trying to have a normal life because COVID's not going away anytime soon. But masks can really decrease the transmission rate considerably. Unfortunately, when you use the honor system, the uh, mask policy isn't very good. When you use the what system? The honor system, asking everybody just to do the right thing. Right. You think that there should be a, a level of compulsion about it? I would love Americans to have the same fervor towards the mask that we had during World War II when we all came together to help the nation fight either by going to the army or the people at home having the same fervor. I don't see that in today's people caring about their fellow Americans the same way. How far do you think that that possibly comes from the top? I don't think you can blame today's youth and their me first mentality uh, on the last three years. Um, I think this has been an issue with the way children have been raised for a while, not a desire to help other people anymore. That was Dr. Andrew Poteski. He's ICU Medical Director at Jackson South Medical Centre in Miami. Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro on Tuesday announced he had COVID-19. It was our lead story this time yesterday. The result, as we heard from one of his supporters yesterday, uh, of being the kind of leader he is. We were told uh, that it's uh, all down to him just not being able to stop mingling with the people. The president uh, insisted today that he's feeling fine. Indeed, he praised the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine as part of his treatment, although it has no proven success against COVID-19. 
So how has his approach to tackling the pandemic and dealing with his own uh, positive uh, test result played out in Brazil? Our South America correspondent Katie Watson now reports from São Paulo. Jair Bolsonaro is a leader who's never really cared about health guidelines, dismissing them every step of the way, whether it's meeting supporters or even riding a horse at one point to a demonstration in Brasilia. But when it comes to unproven drugs to tackle the virus, it's the only horse he's backed. On the day he announced he got COVID-19, Jair Bolsonaro posted a video of him taking the anti-malarial hydroxychloroquine. Sat at the desk, pills in hand and with a glass of water, he said he was feeling much better than over the weekend, so the drugs must be working. Like his friend Donald Trump up north, Jair Bolsonaro doesn't care if the drug isn't recommended for COVID-19, nor that there could be serious health risks for people who take it when they don't need it. It works for him, he says, so he promotes it. And in pharmacies here, they've seen the impact. Ever since Jair Bolsonaro first touted the drug's benefits, medication more often used to fight malaria in the Amazon, or for those with skin conditions like lupus, demand has soared. Authorities had to introduce a prescription to try and control it. Rosalise Lopez is a pharmacist in Sao Paulo. We had lots of people looking for it. Many just wanted to stock up at home. But we don't allow that. Even so, there was such a big demand for it. The price of the drug has gone up too. There's been a huge boom. One year ago, we never thought about any kind of COVID. Across town, I meet dermatologist Lydia Kogos. Dressed in a white coat and wearing vertiginous heels, she takes off her mask to talk to me. During her long career, she's counted several presidents as her clients. When the pandemic hit, she offered hydroxychloroquine to her colleagues as a preventative measure. She can't see what all the fuss is about or why the drug, she says, has become political. It was a drug that was used in many projects of humanity to help Indians. The young doctors was advised to took the drug before going to this regions to help that population. The people that used to recommend hydroxychloroquine as a prevention, uh, they are more left-wing uh, doctors. It's proven with malaria. It's not proven and indeed could be dangerous to fight a virus. There is no proof that it was going to fight it. So it's not about the drug itself, it's about the use of the drug. Yes, but it's common in medicine when you don't have time to make the perfect studies to use something to try. While Jair Bolsonaro has made sure that drugs can be offered to patients with even the mildest of symptoms, many health professionals say it's a dangerous path to go down. Miguel Nicolelis is a neuroscientist helping states in the Northeast tackle COVID-19. I have talked to a lot of my friends and they are now in the trenches and they are telling me people come to the emergency room asking for the drug before we even examine the person. And this is how this message has penetrated. Uh, is another virus. 
is an information virus that has penetrated and synchronized millions of people to believe that there is a silver bullet when we all know that there is not. And in the middle of a pandemic, the health ministry has been sidelined. Two health ministers, both doctors, have gone because they backed global health recommendations that Mr Bolsonaro didn't agree with. The man now in charge temporarily is an army general, whose biggest move so far has been to get the military to boost production of hydroxychloroquine. Meanwhile, on the streets of Brazil's cities, it's getting busier. Brazil's in a rush to reopen at the worst possible time. But those who back the president repeat his mantra, that the collateral damage of the virus cannot be bigger than the disease itself. Admiral Carlos Chagas is part of Operation COVID, run by the Ministry of Defence. A lot of people talk about science, science, science. But science means medicine, medical science. It means social science as well. So we have to have all those things together because a solution that's perfect for Europe, maybe it's not the best solution to Brazil. Maybe we need to find a solution in the middle term between them. The problem is, Brazil hasn't yet found a solution. It's in the middle of a crisis and it feels like little is being done to get out of it. Katie Watson reporting from Sao Paulo. You're listening to NewsHour. Coming up on the programme, a 36-carat mystery in a Dutch museum. It's a big diamond. I was just thinking about it, just like I think about a lot of objects from Indonesia and Dutch museums. How did it get there? Why is it in the museum? What's the story behind it? We'll tell you the story behind it in just over 10 minutes. Our headlines this as we've been hearing the number of coronavirus cases in the United States has officially passed 3 million. The US Supreme Court has ruled that organisations with moral objections to birth control do not have to offer it in health insurance cover for staff. And the Prime Minister of Ivory Coast, Amadou Gong Koulibaly, has died at the age of 61. This is NewsHour, live from the BBC with me, Tim Franks. Nigeria, with its population of nearly 200 million, has so far had relatively few cases of coronavirus, just under 30,000 confirmed infections and 669 deaths. But, as we heard this time yesterday on the programme from the head of the Africa Centres for Disease Control, it is a country which is causing him deep concern. Case numbers are ticking upwards fast. At the same time, there's mistrust all over the country, with some people not believing the virus is real. The BBC has been given exclusive access to one hospital in the country's main city, Lagos, where doctors and nurses are working on the front line of the pandemic. Yamisi Adagoki has this report. How are you doing today, sir? Okay. Okay, yeah. Let me check your oxygen levels, eh? Dr Kase is a few hours into his shift at the Lagos University Teaching Hospital a sprawling facility in Lagos. He'll be here for at least the next eight hours, and in Nigeria's hot and humid climate, the protective gear he's wearing can be uncomfortable. But coronavirus cases are on the rise, so staff are busy. It's one of our severe ones that uh, we're paying very, very close attention to. He's checking on a 75-year-old patient. 
Like many hit hardest by the virus, he has pre-existing health conditions. He was at the hospital for a routine procedure when he collapsed. He looks frail and is wearing an oxygen mask because he's still struggling to breathe. He tries several times to lift up his arms, but can't quite manage it. If you see the forward, if you saw the way I fell down, it was people around that came to rescue me. It was as if there were no bones in my body. The patients here vary in age. A few are just getting past the worst of the virus. They're sitting up, reading their Bibles or using their phones. Others are still too ill. For most of the people we are seeing here, they either came in either moderately or critically ill. If they need to go on a ventilator, they're sent to a different hospital. Unlike several other parts of this hospital, you can tell that the ward has been newly renovated. It's brightly lit. The beds and fixtures all look new. Successive governments have been accused of underfunding Nigeria's healthcare system. Ask the doctors here and they'll tell you that COVID is putting a strain on a system already stretched thin. Dr Akase has worked in infectious disease for many years, but says nothing compares to this. He's now staying in accommodation at the hospital and hasn't seen his family for nearly two weeks. So when you're going home, you're thinking, OK, so this, should he have done this? Of course, then there are those that died, so you get to carry that with you. One reason people aren't going for testing or treatment in time is because there is a belief that the virus isn't real or that its scale is being exaggerated. Such rumours gained traction after a video claiming to show an empty isolation centre was shared online. We can say that we have about 800 people. Where are the 800 people here? The 600 capacities isolation centre. The government said the video was misleading, but on the busy streets of Lagos, many are still sceptical. Isolation centre, people are dancing, eating, there's no corona. I said it on YouTube now. It's not real. They are using it to defraud the masses that we are already suffering. Coronavirus is in abroad, not here, in Africa. No one that we spoke to was wearing a face covering or a mask or was adhering to social distancing. These things are mandatory by the Lagos state government. And as the numbers continue to increase, things like this are a big concern. Despite the disbelief outside, the suffering inside the wards is very real. I was good as dead. I thought it was all over. Don't pray to have it. It was that bad. This middle-aged woman lost her sister to complications stemming from COVID and now both she and her nephews have been admitted with the virus. That was Yumisi Adegoki reporting from Lagos. A few weeks ago, you may have heard the internet inventor Tim Berners-Lee on NewsHour rail against that very 21st century inequality between those who have access to the World Wide Web and those who don't. Today has seen the launch of a project to bring some remote areas of Kenya online through the use of internet balloons. The company behind the idea is called Loon. It's a sister company of Google, and the idea is that eventually 35 balloons will cover a region spanning 50,000 square kilometres. Loon's CEO is Alistair Westgarth. So we have a fleet in around East Africa of about 30, 30 30-plus they most of them are focused in Kenya, so it's not quite the full fleet, but very close. Today in uh, Kenya, we actually did a uh, final demo for uh, some of the uh, government employees in Kenya, as well as they they did a video call with the president from a location where we were providing coverage, where they were able to uh, connect to uh, local residents that hadn't seen 4G signals ever. 
Right. And without getting into too many technical details, and of course, there'll be stuff that you won't necessarily uh, want to share because it's your intellectual property. Can you just explain to me briefly what it is that's up in the stratosphere and how it works? So we have a helium-filled balloon. Uh, It's called a super pressure balloon because it's a constant volume. The helium is obviously lighter than air. So it lifts up a basically a mobile 4G base station to 20 kilometers in the air. And from a user's perspective, it's just like connecting to any other tower. It just happens to be that that tower is at 20 kilometers in the sky. Obviously, uh, given it's in the sky, it will move around. But the winds are extremely diverse at that altitude. And through our machine learning techniques, we're able to steer the balloon and maintain our coverage over a specific area. Eventually, the balloon will get blown away, but we have other balloons that are that are staged and waiting to come in. So you have multiple balloons providing the coverage over a desired uh, service area. And it is the idea that there's one balloon that connects with a sort of base station and then spreads the internet signal to the other balloons, which can then be picked up from this bigger landmass on the ground. Yeah, that's actually pretty accurate. So there's no point in providing connectivity to the unconnected if you have to have connectivity to connect them. So we bring, obviously, the 4G signal. We bring the power via solar and batteries. And we also bring the backhaul or or, uh, balloon to ground link. And so one balloon will connect to a, a ground station that could be 100, even 200 kilometers away. And then that balloon, in turn, will create a mesh network, just like an advanced Wi-Fi system, a mesh network to all other balloons that could be 1,000 or 2,000 kilometers away in total. And it could be multiple hops. So you could be connected to a balloon. It'll connect to another balloon, another balloon, then finally to a balloon that'll go down to a ground station that's uh, interconnected to uh, the service provider, like Telcom Kenya in this case. Does it matter what the weather is? Uh, Somewhat. We are above nearly all of the weather. We're flying at 20 kilometers. Most uh, unpleasant or uh, hostile weather is below that altitude, but we monitor the weather all the time and make sure that there's no concerns. So 99% of the time, it's a non-issue. And if there is you know, cloud tops that are too high, we can steer them around that or away from that disturbance. Right. And just, and I, I realise this is an idiot question, but it doesn't affect the signal. I mean, you getting, you know, sometimes if you're, you, if you're in the dip of a hill, I find this in North London, I lose my signal. But it's just if, you, if you're trying to sort of get a signal through thick, stormy cloud, it, it's not going to be affected, you're saying? No, they're, you know, Technically, there may be a teeny, teeny difference, but from a pragmatic basis, there's no impact by a storm uh, with respect to the signal that goes to the end user. Alistair Westgarth, CEO of Loon. It's a sister company of Google uh, on how he is hoping that these balloons will bring the internet to uh, parts of the Rift Valley that really haven't had much internet connection, if any, up to now. This is News Hour. Much more to come in the next 30 minutes. If you can, please stay with us. In a moment, here on News Hour, we'll head to Hong Kong and the latest manifestation of Beijing's crackdown. Before that, we all know by now that elderly people and those with some serious pre-existing medical conditions can be much worse affected by the new coronavirus. 
But a recent report from the Centers for Disease Control in the United States suggests that pregnant women with COVID-19 have a heightened risk of being hospitalized and needing intensive care. Professor Sonia Rasmussen is from the Department of Pediatrics and Epidemiology at the University of Florida. What the study shows is it compares pregnant women to women of reproductive age who are not pregnant, and it looks at how likely they are to be uh, admitted to an intensive care unit, to need uh, mechanical ventilation, that means having that tube down their throat needing to breathe for them, or likely to die. What it shows is that they are more likely than other women the same age to need to be admitted to that that intensive care unit, to need that level of care, and to need mechanical ventilation, but they weren't more likely to die. Do we know why that is? Well, we don't know specifically for COVID-19. We do know pregnant women, a lot changes when you're pregnant. You know, your immune system has to change so you can tolerate that fetus that has antigens from the dad's side of the family. And so your immune system, you're not really immune compromised, but your immune system does change to tolerate the pregnancy. Also, especially later in pregnancy, women's lungs change. They can't take as deep of a breath because that baby's pushing up on their diaphragm. And so they can't get that deep breath that they need to get to be able to clear their lungs and cough when you have a serious respiratory infection. And how much evidence is there of, I don't know if this or this study looked into this, but of transmission to the baby? That paper didn't really look into that at all. So some other studies have looked at that. It seems to be rare, but it may be able to occur. The studies are still a little bit conflicting on that topic of whether it can pass from the mom to the baby across the placenta. It appears that it can possibly occur, but if it does, it's pretty rare. How far is this a change in what the Centers for Disease Control said initially in terms of the risk for pregnant women? Well, I think initially they were being cautious. They were looking at the data that were available from China. The data that were available from China and some other places suggested that pregnant women When you compared them to the general population, they weren't at increased risk. But you don't really want to compare pregnant women to the general population. The general population includes men, and we know men are more likely to have severe complications than women, and it includes women that are older. So it really is kind of not a fair comparison. We know respiratory illnesses like H1N1 influenza are more severe during pregnancy. And so that's why they did this study is trying to understand that risk in pregnant women. Professor Sonia Rasmussen from the Department of Pediatrics and Epidemiology at the University of Florida. You're with NewsHour, live from the BBC World Service in London, with me, Tim Franks. Anyone who's been following the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong will tell you that, as often with demonstrations anywhere in the world, they're fuelled and peopled by the young, which perhaps explains why the Chinese authorities have decided now to try to snuff out the latest danger to national security, ANSI school kids. The territory's education minister has today announced that students are now banned from singing what may be deemed political songs, from posting or chanting slogans, and from boycotting classes. What will that mean? Mary Hui is a reporter for the Courts News website in Hong Kong. 
First of all, it's not a surprising move um, from the government. It really carries on from, for example, their decision last week to ban the slogan, the popular protest slogan, Liberate Hong Kong Revolution of Our Times. And now they're extending it more specifically into schools, saying concretely that this protest anthem composed by an anonymous protester last year called Glory to Hong Kong is explicitly banned from schools, that no political activity can be allowed in schools because schools should be neutral and a place for learning. As to how exactly they're going to enforce that, it is unclear. If you have hundreds of students singing that song, are you going to punish them all? And also if students decide to sing, for example, a song from Les Mis, which is also popular for protesters. What does the government have to say about that? It's uh, So far, we have a lot of questions unanswered. The school's order came the same day that a new national Chinese security office opened in the city. The inauguration was attended by Zhang Yenxiong, the man Beijing chose to head the new office, and by Hong Kong's leader Carrie Lam, who said, whoever breaks the law will be held accountable. What do those words mean for the teachers of Hong Kong, especially in the light of the new order from their Minister of Education? Andrew Shum is the chief executive of the Hong Kong Professional Teachers Union. When you see the current situation in Hong Kong, I think it is very understandable to see some students expressing their feelings or their wills over the political issues. So for the teachers, I think uh, we should have more caring or Also, we need to guide the students to discuss about the political issues. But you can see that the reply from the Education Bureau is that they want the teachers to punish them. Even those students, they are only exercise their right in a peaceful manner. And for me, I think it is unacceptable because they are only doing something just like singing a song. It is very peaceful. So we don't think we need to use a punished way to deal with this situation. I mean, do you think that the curriculum will change, that when students are discussing or learning about history, recent history, about politics, about concepts like democracy or liberalism, do you think that teachers now will have to change the way they talk about that, they teach it, they discuss it? Yes, of course, because it is not a surprise that the government will change the curriculum. Also, for the teachers, even their teaching, they also need to, maybe for many of them who are very worried about the current situation, they will have sales answer. I do think that because for them, they are really worried about being complained by, by other people. And that's why I think uh, it will affect the teaching. Because in the past, when you teach history or liberal studies, you can discuss social issues or some historical issues with your students, and you can express your views. But nowadays, I think for for many teachers, they will be afraid of that. And uh, yeah, yeah. Andrew, I, I know that you used to be a teacher before you started working full-time for the union. This may sound like a strange question, but if somebody were asking you about your opinion as to whether they should become a teacher these days, what would you say to them? Uh, To be honest, I think it is very difficult 
to do anything in Hong Kong right now. Uh, even you are not a teacher. Maybe you you're working in other organizations. You are doing business in Hong Kong. I think the chilling effect have already been here. When you talk to someone, you don't know or you never know what works. Or um, and of course, being a teacher is much difficult than before. It is expected that environment in the in the school will change, and maybe you have to self censor if you want to keep your job. It is not easy. Also, I guess you have a duty of care towards yeah. your. The children that you're teaching. I mean, you don't want to get them into trouble as well. Yeah, so it's very quite difficult for the teachers, especially and also for the new teachers. I do think education is very important for any societies. Uh, of course, I want more people to join the education sector to make it better. But uh, to be honest, I think it is not easy for me to encourage someone to be a teacher right now. Yeah. And Andrew, how do you feel about talking to us? I realize that all that you're saying, all that we've heard from Hong Kong, is that the atmosphere has changed. Do you feel okay about talking to the BBC in London? Actually, um, because I always answer journalists' questions. So, but to be honest, after the enactment of national security law, of course you have more worried about what you are talking. Because you never know where is the red line, and you never know when you will touch the red line. There's something changing. You will be worried, but you still want to tell more about what you feel or your comment over the current situation in Hong Kong. Yeah. Andrew Shum, the chief executive of the Hong Kong Professional Teachers Union. Occasionally, I'm delighted to say, my news hour editor tells me something I had no idea about. Today's surprising fact, surprising to me anyway, was that the visit by the Mexican president to the White House is his first foreign trip since he became president almost two years ago. What's also intriguing about this visit is not just that some of his hosts' language about Mexico has, in recent years, not been complimentary, but also that Andrés Manuel López Obrador who's seen as the embodiment of a left-wing tradition in his home country, is now regarded as having plenty in common with Donald Trump. Within the last hour, President Trump uh, welcomed his Mexican counterpart to the White House. It's my tremendous pleasure to welcome everyone to the White House, with my good friend President López Obrador of Mexico. We've had a very outstanding relationship. Mr. President, we're truly moved that you chose to make your first foreign visit since taking office, very successfully taking office, I might add, to be with us at the White House. The relationship between the United States and Mexico has never been closer than it is right now. And as the President said a little while ago, people were betting against that. They were actually betting against that. Uh, it's, but it's never been stronger, never been closer. We're doing tremendous job together. We're cherished friends, partners, and neighbors. Our cooperation is founded on mutual trust and mutual respect between the two of us and between our two countries. And we honor the great dignity of both nations. Donald Trump speaking within the last hour. Nick Miroff of the Washington Post has been uh, covering the visit. Um, Nick, I'm 
slightly perplexed because from all that I understand, Donald Trump isn't terribly popular in Mexico. Uh, The Mexican president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, is reasonably popular. Um, What's in it for him, do you think, to visit the White House now? Well, as you said, this is his first trip abroad. Um, It's a very big deal. And I think that um, that his remarks today in the Rose Garden, which were quite extraordinary at one point, he compared his relationship to Trump to that of Mexican national hero Benito Juarez and Abraham Lincoln. Um, but I think what that really underscores is that for Lopez Obrador, avoiding some kind of conflict with the United States that would hurt Mexico's economy and create domestic problems for him is the top priority. Um, he's gone along with... Uh, some of the border security things that that Trump has demanded of him um, and hasn't really paid a price for it um, in terms of his approval rating. Um, the, again, the priority for him is uh, keeping the economy from from collapsing. Right. And, and I guess that is key then, isn't it? Because um, the coronavirus, I mean, it's hit economies everywhere. But I, I, I guess the Mexican economy has taken a, a particularly savage hit from it and, and is, of course, so reliant on trade with the North. That's right. And, you know, we got to remember that President Trump has threatened to close the border with Mexico. He's threatened to slap tariffs on Mexican exports to the United States. This is by far the most important trade relationship uh, for for Mexico. Um, And uh, this, you know, this deal, this, you know, the president came in demanding to, you know, basically rewrite the North American Free Trade Agreement that has governed um, commerce for the last generation. Um, and, and Mexico essentially went along for the ride. And um, Lopez Obrador is here to uh, to lock that in place. Um, and, you know, really without major changes, but um, mostly to appease uh, his powerful neighbor to the north. And as a result of what Donald Trump um asked for or ordered, the the Mexican president um, redeployed his National Guard to the southern border to try and stem the flow of immigrants um, up into the United States. How how successful has that been? Well, it's remarkable. I mean, a year ago, uh, um, at this time, um, we were seeing more than 100,000 migrants coming across the border, record numbers of Central American families, it was overwhelming uh, the U.S. immigration system and you know, creating a major domestic crisis for President Trump and a major impediment to his um, reelection pitch. Again, you know, he, he was um, planning to run on, on Im- his immigration record and he threatened Mexico with tariffs and got uh, President Lopez Obrador to agree to this sweeping crackdown that involved Mexican troops arresting Central American migrants and families and really, uh, you know, someone who has been an advocate for the rights of Central American migrants all his life, um, you know, ended up, uh, you know, cooperating and playing this crucial role in turning things around. Since then, migration levels have fallen more than 80%. Nick, is there any danger, do you think, in this for AMLO, the the Mexican president, in that uh, there may be Democrats? I mean, should... uh, um, Joe Biden win the election. There may be Democrats who say, you know, it was unfortunate, uh, Mr. López Obrador, that you decided to come to uh, a pay homage to Donald Trump just a few months before the election. I don't know. I think Democrats have typically valued uh, warm relations with 
with uh, Mexico. Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, ideological sympathy um, for some of the things that Lopez Obrador has always advocated for and Democrat like Joe Biden. I I have a hard time imagining that he would um, – you know, pay some kind you know, make make Lopez Obrador pay some sort of price for okay. um, for doing this with her Trump. All right. Nick Miroff from The Washington Post. Good to speak to you. Thank you very much for joining us live on NewsHour. Top story this hour, the number of coronavirus cases in the United States has officially passed 3 million. Speaking to us, uh, Dr. Andrew Pateski, he's ICU medical director at Jackson South Medical Center in Miami, said everyone needs to wear a face covering to bring the infection rate down. I believe masks are going to be the key, a very simple answer to going forward in this country um, and trying to have a normal life because COVID's not going away anytime soon. But masks can really decrease the transmission rate considerably. Unfortunately, when you use the honor system, the uh, mask policy isn't very good. One other headline, the US Supreme Court has ruled that organisations with moral objections to birth control do not have to offer it in health insurance cover for staff. This is NewsHour, live from the BBC with me, Tim Franks. And uh, let's take a brief trip now to the Netherlands, which earlier this year returned thousands of precious artefacts to Indonesia, which had been taken during its long colonial rule. Not though a 36-carat diamond from the island of Borneo, which sits in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. And as Rebecca Henschke reports, descendants of the Sultan, who once owned it, want it back. And they're being supported by a Dutch historian. The huge diamond sits sparkling in a glass cabinet in Amsterdam's top art museum, surrounded by oil paintings. When Dutch historian Caroline Driesenhausen came across it, it was simply labelled the Bunjamasin diamond. It's a big diamond. It was there. And I was just thinking about it, just like I think about a lot of objects from Indonesia and Dutch museums. How did it get there? Why is it in the museum? What's the story behind it? So, yeah, I really wanted to find that out. She delved into the archives as part of a larger effort by the museum to tell the story of controversial objects in its collection. What she found out was that in 1859, the people of Banjamasin on the island of Borneo in Indonesia were punished for revolting against Dutch colonial rule. People were arrested, other people were murdered. There was a lot of tension, there was a lot of violence. Well, the diamond of Banjarmasin was taken by the Dutch to the Netherlands to sell it or give it to King Willem III. But the king didn't want it because it was too expensive to cut it and to polish it. Eventually, it ended up in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. Even if we tried, it would be very hard to find a diamond that size in Borneo now, says Ahmad Fikri, the representative of the Sultan. He stands looking over the floating markets on the mighty rivers that surround Banjamasin. Traders sell fruit, vegetables and meat from their wooden boats in the same way they have for centuries. 
Indonesia gained independence from the Dutch shortly after the end of the Second World War. But it wasn't until 2010 that the Sultan here was re-established. And now Ahmad says they want their property back. It's not only the diamond. There are also thrones and other artefacts that we don't have all the exact details of that were taken by the Dutch. We want them all to be returned because our kingdom deserved to have what was taken from us returned. When the king and queen of the Netherlands visited Indonesia earlier this year, they brought with them thousands of precious objects, including sacred swords that belonged to renowned independence fighters. But not the diamond. That discussion is ongoing. But thanks to Dutch historian Caroline's research, the diamond is now described as war booty in the museum. So we are getting there, but it takes a long, long time. A colonial way of thinking is still very persistent. It's so internalised in people's minds here in the West. I feel sometimes a bit ashamed when I'm talking with Indonesian people about this history. We should really just hand it over to the people who are the legal owners of it. Back in Borneo, historians say the diamond is priceless and having it returned home would be monumental. It would mean, they say, that the next generation can see it and reclaim a part of their history. Rebecca Henschke reporting uh, out of the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. It's been a turbulent 24 hours in Serbia. On Tuesday evening, the president, Aleksandr Vucic, said he intended to put Belgrade under curfew over the weekend because of a surge of coronavirus cases. Violent protests ensued on the streets of the capital. Today, the president backtracked, saying there'd probably not be a complete lockdown, but there will be a final decision tomorrow, Thursday. Didn't stop further protests roiling Belgrade this evening. Milka Domanovic is the editor of Balkan Insight in the city. Is the government conducting a screeching U-turn? Yes, it, it, it seems that way. Uh, but uh, the main point here when we are talking about this protest last night and, and tonight as tensions are running really high is that people are unhappy with the overall handling of the crisis with the coronavirus by the government. So this, these protests are not only against these announced uh, new uh, lockdowns for, for the weekend. Right. And so they're unhappy about the fact what that the government, I mean, it did lock down pretty hard, didn't it, early on, but then lifted a a lot of the restrictions in a very liberal way. I mean, from what I understand, football matches were held. Obviously, the elections were held, which saw um, the the governing party returned uh, with a pretty hefty majority. Uh, Are people saying that that just all happened a bit too quickly? Yes, and and uh, it seems that the whole situation was uh, politicized, and that is what uh, caused the outrage uh, um, among the people because the um, those strict measures were lifted uh, probably uh, prematurely when the situation was not uh, yet satisfactory in terms of the situation with the coronavirus, only to hold elections and, and with no uh, rules that in regards to social distancing and, and so on. So uh, now we are seeing uh, the announcement of the new measures only after the, the elections uh, are over. 
Right. And um, the government, from what I understand, is saying that these protests are just the work of a few sort of right-wing nutters and foreign agitators. Uh, Is that what is felt more broadly? I don't think so. Uh, So, for example, last night, probably one of the most um, powerful scenes that we could see was one young man who was literally crying and saying, Dad, this is for you, because his dad uh, unfortunately lost his life um, from coronavirus uh, just recently, and his uh, father uh, was not able to get a ventilator uh, on time. And today, this young man is being portrayed in uh, pro-government, uh, media, government mouthpieces uh, as, a, as a hooligan uh, who was uh, uh, allegedly a hooligan during his high school days. So um, this is more of a government propaganda than a, a, a real thing. But again, there are suspicious uh, uh, suspects uh, about involvement of some dodgy organizations that could actually um, make harm to uh, uh, peaceful protesters, uh, protests uh, organized by the ordinary people. Milka Domanovic, editor of Balkan Insights, speaking to me from Belgrade. That's it from this edition of NewsHour from all of us here. Thanks ever so much for listening. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts. This is The Comb. You need The Comb. The Comb, no. Need The Comb. The Comb. The Comb is all about digging deep into one single African story every week. This is like a moment. This is a day for you to celebrate. Stories that might otherwise go underneath the radar, that might otherwise be overlooked. You're in a hurry to get money. You just click OK and that one button lands you into trouble. Stories about Africa and stories that matter. I would walk into a bank for my salary only to be told that I should come back tomorrow because there's no money in the bank. So I decided just to quit. I quit. I hope people will feel the way that I sometimes feel where you are surprised and you come away kind of like, oh, I really didn't know that. Why would anybody kill somebody over sand? What on earth would make sand so valuable? That's The Comb from the BBC World Service. Just search for The Comb wherever you get your podcasts.